This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, In an Appalachian College Town. And the author is Seamus F. O'Connor. And Seamus joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Seamus. Hi, how are you today? Very good. Well, give us a kind of in general what your book is about, a little on the plot, uh, just in general. Give us a description, short description. Sure, Steve. Um, short description is a, it's a story about three main characters who live in a college town. Uh, their lives are interwoven. They're basically flawed individuals. Uh, their lives are filled with conflict, which is realistic. There's nothing really... Uh, outside the scope of norm, uh, and so I believe that the readers will identify with the characters either uh, personally or by people that they've known uh, going growing up in life or, or living life. What was the motivation, Seamus, to write the book? Um, I'd always been interested in writing, and when I was in college, I thought that uh, as a uh, something that I wanted to achieve in my life that I would write a book and it of course took a number of years after college before I got in a position where I thought that I could write a book in a year or so and so I thought okay well I'll get a computer and start writing uh, six years later when I finished this book uh, <laughs> after extensive research and editing I uh, had uh, finished a book that turned out to be um, quite an epic story involving three unique characters and describing a town where the uh, individuals are often quite accomplished, um, intelligent, uh, successful, um, but yet nonetheless very human. Now this town, Corinth, you call it a charming town with old Victorian houses nestled right in the slopes of the Appalachia it appears to be idyllic, but uh, there's more going on? Um, well, yes. In, in, in life, I've found that um, there's always something percolating underneath the surface of uh, a situation which causes conflict, and the conflict is either very visible or um, has to be dwelled into a uh, more psychological standpoint, and you'll discover in the book that there is um, a good bit of psychological analysis of what's going on in the individual characters' minds, and the reader will discover that the characters are unique and distinct, um, that many characters um, often don't like the other characters, thereby bringing out conflict. The other thing that's distinct about the character development and that there's often a pairing of characters to kind of emphasize the contrast of their individualities. Um, so I believe, does that answer your question? Yes, Steve? yes, very good. And, you know, we often uh, hear about thrillers and mysteries and there's intrigue. Uh, how would you describe your book? 
Well, I, I wrote this book targeting males between the age of 25 and 55 that were college educated and typically interested in diverse issues, whether ranging from science, business to spirituality, which is touched on in the last third of the book. Um, the book has, shall we say, um, it's lighter moments where especially the graduate student scene is described and the behavior is something akin to say the animal house movie or um a movie um such as um van wilder um if you think of the characters that are in the big bang theory but make them less geeky and more uh social you will get a better understanding of uh, that graduate scene that I'm presenting. And I think uh, people that have gone through a master's or a PhD program will identify uh, with the description of that scene, especially if they've gone to uh, a large university located uh, fairly outside an urban area. Well, let's talk about Brian Fitzgerald Murphy. Uh, is he the key character? He's the main protagonist, and um, he serves to to be the backbone in which the story is wound. Um, his story is that he leaves the West Coast to take up employment at a university in what is the tech transfer office. He's doing business development, so his job is to create new companies and to facil facilitate economic growth in a depressed rural region, and he comes across in the beginning of the book as a very sophisticated, um, intelligent person. His uh, story evolves as he somewhat declines in character, uh, especially through the graduate student scene, and uh, you begin to see his flaws. Um, and as that happens, uh, of course, Brian is put into situations that um, are quite funny and at times somewhat um, at great expense to him. And um, I think the readers will laugh out loud at times, uh, especially when some of the other characters come in, like Dilip, who is an Indian character, uh, a postdoc student who uh, basically befriends Brian and introduces him into the, the graduate student um, world. Now, you have a number of international characters. Uh, why is that? Well, if you are familiar with um, large research universities, you'll understand that a large number of the graduate student population are foreign-born, and uh, that's one of the strengths of this country is that we allow um, bright foreigners that have a lot of potential to come into this country uh, go through PhD programs, master programs, and um, if they're fortunate and, and they want to, they can stay on in this country and contribute to um, both the United States culture as well as economics or uh, economy in a sense of contributing uh, in one form or the other. And there are large expatriate uh, communities of Chinese and Indian uh, graduates who have chosen to stay in this country and start their own com companies or to be critical employees of uh, successful entrepreneurial companies. And the list of those kind of people um, is you know, exhaustive in the sense of um, 
if you look within the Silicon Valley or Boston communities. Let's look at Marion, the uh, British researcher. Tell us about him or her. It's, it's a her. Okay, Marion. Um, Marion is a is a successful um, faculty woman who has been tenured for a number of years, and she um, has basically reached a very comfortable uh, plateau in her career, uh, but at some expense to her personal life, um, her marriage uh, ended and she is living alone and she uh, develops a relationship with a character who is not her peer professionally, but is equal to her in strength of character. And that contrast uh, brings in some interesting dynamics and um, really brings out uh, a nice conflict to the the male character that um, she is paired with, Neil Ferguson. He is uh, high school educated, 20 years in the military, and he is working within the facilities um, unit of the university. And he um, he basically represents the Scott-Irish tradition. Marion, who is from the United Kingdom, represents the British tradition, and there's historical uh, overlaps between the two, and um, and that conflict of the Scott-Irish background as well as the, the British aristocracy is played out in a very modern uh, version within the book. Well, again, this charming town named Corinth, uh, it also is a small college town with a binge-drinking problem. Um, yeah, anyone that's lived within a college town any period of time, um, especially on the weekends, will be aware that the culture in college towns is, is centered around binge drinking. And um, it's just a fact of life. And I've represented that because that's reality, at least in this period of time. And one of the objectives I had in writing this book was to capture the world that I saw around me within this college town to um, present it to the reader and, and to preserve it so that maybe in 10 or 20 years when this environment no longer exists, that there's this record that provides an entertaining read for future readers. And then we have a Chinese-American Jason. Tell us about him. Um, Jason has an interesting uh, family history. His family came into the United States when he was about 11, and his um, father had uh, suffered through the Cultural Revolution, and he becomes Americanized and very successful academically and proceeds to have a great academic uh, pedigree of a number of, of top-notch universities. And he comes to Corinth um, in part because... He suffered a personal loss, and he's looking for a fresh start that doesn't have the emotional uh, pain that the memories would be if he'd stayed uh, in the town that he originally was, which was Baltimore. He was working at Johns Hopkins. And um, Jason is viewed as a rising star for the department, and he has an incredible amount of potential. Um, and he eventually develops a relationship with a Latin American immigrant, a musician, and um, she adds to his 
personality where he's deficient and brings a lot of uh, joy of life, which is something that I've observed uh, with the Latin American community is that their love of life. And I thought that that was a nice pairing when I was writing the book because based on my extensive experience with Chinese immigrants, they're definitely hardworking, but they seem to have a deficiency in joy of life when compared with Latin Americans. So I thought pairing them together would create a a means in which the one character, Jason, could grow in that area. And uh, I think that it's presented in a very um, proper way and and, uh, and it has its its sad moments too which you know like every relationship people are tested and the challenge is how to handle those tests in a manner that one can look back on and be proud or if you don't do it properly you know one with hindsight can be ashamed of uh, their actions. Now, you spend, uh, I don't know how much time, but uh, you can tell us, how much time do you center around university-based startups and why? Um, That theme is made uh, throughout the book. I um, had done a good bit of research in that area. I thought it was an interesting part of um, contemporary American society. Since the Bayh-Dole Act was passed uh, about 25 years ago, the universities had become basically the foundation for economic growth within the United States because Congress gave the universities the right to protect, to own and protect, you know, uh, inventions arising from government-funded research. And you've had an incredible amount of growth because of that. And uh, it's an interesting um, aspect of this country. And one of the reasons why Silicon Valley and Boston are hotbeds for entrepreneurship is because of the phenomenal research that has been done in uh, those areas around the prestigious universities that are there. I thought it was much more interesting to examine the similar situation, but put it in a rural, depressed community where you don't have the existing infrastructure that has been built up over a 30 or 40 year period where you have venture capitalists living in the community. That does not exist in Corinth, and um, it creates a challenge professionally for Brian to get the resources into the community to facilitate um, the growth, the founding, the growth, and um, the successful uh, exit strategies of these kind of companies. Tell us about Dillip. Interesting name and, uh, I guess, an interesting lifestyle. Well, Dillip is a brilliant um, scientist who is doing a postdoc position at um, Appalachian University. He um, is set to be very successful in um, his academic career, yet he has some glaring uh, personal flaws that um, just create wonderful opportunities for for humor. And I um, also used him basically as a bridge between the American and international communities and also the, the Indian and the American communities because there's a good bit of um, descriptions on the Indian community and um, the students that are active in that. And Dilt, in fact, is in 
the leader, the student leader of an Indian um, student group, and he uh, actually organized a, a celebration called Holi, um, but that actually coincides on a very cold spring day, and I think uh, the Indian community will um, find that funny because, of course, in India, you don't necessarily have cold weather, and uh, it creates a bit of a suffering um, event for the participants, but nonetheless, again, very realistic. I um, also made Dilip to be an individual with a strong drinking par uh, problem. He tended to be able to um, go to parties even if he wasn't invited and um, had a great network of people, although he wasn't necessarily uh, as well-liked as other characters would have been. Um, again, he was just a very human figure uh, that I wanted to uh, add into this uh, community of, of characters because he just brought so much to the table. The title of the book, In an Appalachian College Town. And the author is Seamus F. O'Connor. Seamus, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is available through iUniverse. It's um, available uh, online as well as soft copy and hard copy. Um, there is a um, ability to access the book electronically at Amazon and also Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Seamus. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vasley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back. 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, What Is That Boy Going to Do Next? A Memoir. And the author is George Hemingway Isom. And George joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, George. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're going to talk about this life of yours Every we guess we're going to start about the eight, about the time you're a teenager, a non-conforming teenager, as you put it, age fourteen, and then we're going to go all the way down to you getting a PhD. That is quite a story because we go from dropout to PhD. Let me read what you have written, and then we'll jump into the details. What is that boy going to do next? Is a story about a maverick, a non-conforming teenager with an an insatiable curiosity about the world of diverse people, places, and ideas. It's also a tale of a teenager's tough, loving mom and the tension it causes. A strict dad incapable of taking care of business because of addiction to alcohol and a generously loving stepmom whose support is transformative and a brother practicing his version of sibling rivalry. So, has a little bit of everything in which life does, doesn't it? It's always filled with a, a lot of folks that have an influence one way or the other on you. George, uh, why did you decide to do this? Why did you decide to write this memoir? Well, uh, before starting to write this book, I thought of my teenage life as simply an entertaining adventure story with improbable events like joining the Navy at 14. Then I realized that as a high school dropout myself and a nonconformist as well, my story had resonance for today's teenagers who are dropouts and with those who are unconventional in their outlook, behavior, and so on. My book reflects both types of teenagers the dropout type, and the unconventional type. And it was written especially for them. So I hope my book will help dropouts see that they can always return to school. And I hope nonconformists will see that it's okay to be true to themselves and not feel bad when others don't accept them for for who they are. Now, you have some different themes in your book, and we're going to have you read some of your book, but just to mention a couple of the themes, uh, one is personal integrity, another is bullying, then you have a whole theme on date rape and smoking pot. Uh, Would you like to just uh, comment on any of those, one in particular, or what what would you like to do? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the one that has to do with smoking pot. I was invited to a pot-smoking party in San Francisco by a friend of mine, and I had never gone to such a party, nor had I ever smoked pot. So I didn't know what I was in for. I went along with her, a woman, and when we got to the place, the person who answered the door gave each one of us uh, uh, some pot, a stick, marijuana, whatever you call it. I put mine in my, I was in my Navy uniform, of course, at the time, and I put mine in my best pocket. 
and we walked in, and she quickly got lost from me in all the haze in that, it was two or three rooms, and people in each room in, in, in small groups. And with the haze that the smoke caused, soon I didn't see her. She just kind of disappeared. And I'm wandering around from room to room, looking at what was going on and trying, trying to figure it out. And the smell of the smoke was bothering me so much that soon I just had to leave. So I went about searching for her. It wasn't easy to find her, as I said, in all that haze. But soon I did find her. Eventually I found her and told her that I wanted to leave. And she finished her pot in a moment two more of time and joined me in leaving. When we got to the door to leave, the guy who had given us the pot noticed that I still had mine in my breast pocket and he asked for it back. So I gave it to him and we left. Now, the lesson I think that is there in that little story for so many teenagers especially is that you don't have to smoke pot because everybody else is smoking pot. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't. Uh, I was offended by the smell of this stuff. So I think that was an example of me being true to who I am and not being persuaded by everybody else who was doing their thing. And I like to cite that to teenagers as an example to follow. So you went from the ghetto of St. Louis, a ninth grade dropout. Uh, you had worldwide experiences uh, because of the Navy. And then, of course, uh, you, as you put it, stumbled into early adulthood. And you eventually end up in a place I guess you wanted to go was New York City. Yes. That yes. was a big goal. Yeah, that was my magic city. I, was, I would stay home at uh, times when I was 13 years old. I was a truant. And I would stay home, preferring that to the classes, seventh grade. And I would listen to the radio, and there was a program called Kate Smith, who was a very popular singer. And her program would come on in St. Louis at 12 o'clock. No, it wasn't 12 o'clock, sorry. It was 12 o'clock, but not in St. Louis. It was 12 o'clock in New York. And the announcer, whose name I don't remember, but it's in the book, he would introduce the program this way. In a fine, stentorian voice, he'd say, It's high noon in New York. And every time I heard that, Boy, I wanted to be in New York. It just sounded like a <laughs> wonderfully magical place. Huh. And this was at age 13 when I decided that that is the magic city for me. And it took uh, the Navy to get me there some, let's see, I was, I was 14 when I went into the Navy and 14 when I went to New York. The Christmas of 1945. I did get to New York for the first time, and of course I uh, began to live in New York City in 1950, 
1951, yes. In 1951, I became a citizen of New York City, in my magical city. So between <laughs> during the seventh grade tournament at age 13 until 1951, when I was 20, so seven years went by, I'm 20 years old, and I had then realized my, my dream. Well, at 20, you learn a trade. At age 26, you take high school classes to matriculate in college, and then you graduated with a B.A. In over 15 years, you earned three graduate degrees, including a Ph.D. What an accomplishment, George. Uh, congratulations. Well, thank you, Steve. Well, why don't you read a few of uh, some things that you'd like to share with us from your book? Okay, thank you. I, I would like to uh, read this piece about my boxing experience on my ship, the USS General A.E. Anderson, a troop transport that uh, carried 5,000 troops and uh, had a crew officers and crew of uh, 500, so quite a, quite a large number of people on board this ship. And uh, from time to time there would be boxing matches staged for the entertainment of all, some of all of those people who were on board ship. And uh, I learned about it and became interested in being one of the boxers. So I'm going to read from the book. One clear and breezy morning while en route to Pearl Harbor, I went to the gym as I often did on my off-duty days at sea. There was never more than a few people present when I showed up, and I liked it that way. I'd punch the speed bag and hit the heavy bag to my delight without an audience. Soon I learned to punch the speed bag as rhythmically as professional boxers. Then I began to think of myself as a fighter and sparred with whoever was available. When I learned that the, organi the, that the organizers of the boxing match were looking for some boxers, I was excited and quickly signed up. I didn't know whom I was going to fight until a few minutes before the bout. But it didn't matter because I felt great and was ready to rumble. I climbed into the ring against a seaman named Bates, a chunky guy about 20 and outweighing me by 20 pounds or more. But the difference in weight didn't matter because I felt strong having lifted weights in addition to working out with the punching bag. I was confident and eager for the three rounds of boxing. The first round was no sweat. Bates kept his distance, and I had to go after him. I thought he was a little intimidated and tested the notion with a couple of right crosses set up by my ever-present left jab in his face. He backed up throughout the second round with me peppering him with my left jab and following it with a right cross. By the third round, he hadn't hurt me with anything he'd thrown. Coasting along and assured of victory, I thought I'd won the admiration of the spectators with my boxing skills. 
until suddenly somebody shouted loudly, you don't have to hit him, Bates. Just let him stand there and the wind will blow him down. <laughs> that advice got Bates into a lot of trouble, for I went after him and caught him with a stiff right to the face. He grimaced, backpedaled, and evaded me for the rest of the round. My performance may not have won the respect of some onlookers, but as they say, I emerged victorious. <laughs> well, good for you. Uh, well, some of your messages in your book, uh, let's talk about those. We have a few minutes left here. One of them is, it's okay to be yourself. Right. And don't give up on your dreams. I hope my book will help dropouts see that they can always return to school, and I hope nonconformists will see that it's okay to be true to themselves, not give up on their dreams, and not feel bad when others don't accept them for who they are. You also feel pretty strongly about the, the uh, great learning experience of traveling to different places and cultures. Yes, yes, that uh, was what I was really after. There was this sign uh, that was ever present back in 1945 that uh, had had this drawing of Uncle Sam, and Uncle Sam is looking out at everybody who's passing this poster saying, join the Navy and see the world. Well, that's what I wanted to do, see the world, and I got to see quite a bit of, uh, of Asia and the Pacific. Uh, we... Well, first of all, to, to back up, I was on a troop transport ship, as I said earlier, and our job was to transport troops and supplies, carry troops and supplies back and forth from Asia to the United States. And our home port was San Francisco. So it was a regular pattern that we repeated from voyage to voyage. Now, one typical voyage would be to leave San Francisco, go into Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and from Pearl Harbor we would go to Guam, and from Guam we'd go north to uh, Japan, well, to China first, and then to Japan. Or on some trips it would be Japan and China from Pearl Harbor, and then southward down to the Philippines, and uh, sometimes we would stop on the way at Okinawa, once we stopped at Okinawa, and that was an interesting stop. There was no liberty, nobody went ashore, the ship just tied up and picked up some passengers, and while we were there, I remember looking at the, the pier one day, at the dock one day, and seeing some Japanese soldiers in a work detail. They were prisoners, and an American soldier had them uh, in tow, and they were going someplace to work. And I remember afterwards reading how a lot of Japanese soldiers on Okinawa remained in the caves hiding with no knowledge that the war was over in August 1945. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at these people, and I'm, I wasn't aware of what I just said 
about their feelings and about their knowledge or lack of knowledge. But when I look back on what I had seen, I'm thinking now, where'd those soldiers find, where'd that soldier find, find those guys? I guess they went into the caves in some place and found those guys. But anyway, that was, uh, that was a strange kind of experience for me, really, seeing those Japanese prisoners. Well, your memoir gives the story going from cotton picker in California to an administrator at the State Education Department in Albany, New York. The title of the book is, What is That Boy Going to Do Next? A Memoir. George Hemingway Isom is the author. George, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book can be ordered from any online bookseller, like Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. Or it can be ordered directly from the publisher, iUniverse, and uh, iUniverse.com would do. Thank you, George, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, Choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central, on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central, on the mom to mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and angie check out her website azmamaminihats.com she is a strong woman she is powerful she is wonderful and she is valuable mom of many hats with angie mazillo friday afternoons at five eastern four central on the mom to mom network welcome back to iUniverse radio with host steve jorgensen the title of the book pipe dream an Alaskan Adventure, and the author is D.B. Brownlow, and Debbie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Debbie. Hello. Good to have you with us. You're in the frigid temperatures of Alaska, though it is a heat wave, you say, since uh, you've come way up from 50 below. Right. We're 23 <laughs> below today. So 23 below. 
I'm yeah. in the uh, tropics. Well, that is an adventure in Alaska, that's for sure. Well, your book, it's uh, your memoirs, would you call it? Yes, I would. It was. It started out as a journal, uh, writing it to my brother, but yes, a memoir. Okay, well, you say uh, Debbie was a young woman working in a stifling office job in suburban Detroit, and you dreamed of faraway places and longed for excitement. So your book is kind of a journey, uh, personal experiences, where instead of just dreaming, you went to these faraway places and a lot of excitement along the way. Yeah, it was a real adventure, and uh, I was a pioneer. Inside was a pioneer in that little person in Detroit. <laughs> so this is back when? When when did this all, when did these uh, feelings of getting away start? How old were you? I was in uh, my early 20s and um, had been working uh, secretarial positions, executive secretarial positions in Detroit, and in 1974, absolutely uh, did not tolerate the job I was at any longer, and decided that I would uh, I would make my move and take off, and and really wasn't quite sure where I was headed, but I was leaving Detroit and in my safe comfort zone. I decided. And you left your miserable boss, Herb. No, no, I had never met my miserable oh, boss. Oh, he's up in yet. Alaska. Yet, oh. He's yet to come. He's I left come. nine miserable bosses <laughs> that I was working for. It's not that they were so much miserable. They were unusual. And um, people probably these days don't even remember things like dictaphones and manual typewriters and and that that I had to work with. But I worked for nine men and did most of the work. And, um, and shorthand. Yeah, shorthand and, and stuff like that. Right. And I just was so bored, and I knew that um, at that time I didn't have really much college. I'd just gone right out into the work uh, field after high school and just wanted to do something else and knew that, um, just knew that I had a calling to leave, that there was too much in this world and too big of a world to, to stay in Michigan. So you first went to California, though. That was your first trip out of um, uh, Detroit? When I was 21, yes. I took a trip to California, and a, a couple things happened. They're silly. I was bumped up into first class, which I figured was a sign from somebody that I should <laughs> be going places. And I was laying outside and uh, soaking up the sun and felt my first earthquake. And that must have shook more than just my body because then I started doing little trips after that when I came home. And you also got an invitation to, uh, I guess, join a commune. I did. That was rather exciting. I was on Hollywood Boulevard just uh, walking around. And before I knew it, I had somebody, quite a few people, about three inches from my face that started strumming and singing and what was frightening, they all had uh, huge smiles on their faces. And coming from Detroit, that was that threw me off. I was <laughs> just terrified and told me that I could join them and go to their ranch or farm in Tennessee. I think it was at that time called the Jesus Freaks. But that to do that, I had to give up everything, give them my money, give them my brand-new Volkswagen I had just bought, and turn over everything, and then I could... I could join them in their lives, which sounded 
very bad. So um, fortunately, my cousin came along and snapped me out of the group of people. <laughs> but that got you thinking, didn't it? I mean, this these are new experiences you're having. Oh, definitely, yeah. It was really mind-boggling because then you're coming in contact with all kinds of uh, people that, you know, I had never been around. And, and even though they, the concept of, like, going to the ranch and giving up everything wasn't my idea of fun, the idea that there was a ranch and people were living such extraordinary different lives, yeah, started me thinking about all that was out there that I didn't know about and that um, there was so much, you know, to explore and that maybe I should start, uh, you know, thinking in a different direction. Obviously, there were a lot of places that you could end up. How did it happen that you ended up in Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska? Yeah, of all places, and especially since I don't like snow, I was running away from the snow also. Um, my friend and I had gone to a movie series, and the last one we had seen had been on Alaska, so when we decided, uh, I decided to take off and he was going to join me, we sort of headed west and took a long time to get to Alaska, just sort of meandered through the Rockies and then went up through Canada and across Canada and then up into the Yukon. And then we were that far and went, oh, Alaska. We were sitting around the campfire, Alaska, that would be a great, let's go visit Alaska. And um, we were only 1,500 miles from Alaska at that time and drove the Alcan uh, Highway, the Alaska Highway, which at that time was all dirt for the 1,500 miles, and uh, ended up in Fairbanks. And uh, beside, I, I think the deciding factor was we were sitting around the campfire and counted our money and had $26. So we decided, oh, that would be a great place to settle for a while. In fact, we need to settle here. We have no money. We're not we have no money. Anywhere. Well, those so, were the days, right? Those were the days where you could make it on $26 and <laughs> a box of rice aroni and a couple eggs or something. But we weren't going to get too far. We still had to put gas in the car. So my uh, third day in Alaska, I ended up getting a job in a uh, restaurant cocktail waitressing, which I'd never done. And there I remained for uh, about the next 30 years. <laughs> well, the doors open, we go through them, we never know where uh, the, the path may lead, but your journey uh, led to the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, and boy, that was a little different, wasn't it? That was an amazing project that was going on when I came to Fairbanks. They had just started surveying the what they call the haul road to ship the goods and get all the machinery and equipment. They were building an Alaska pipeline to transport oil from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, down to Valdez, where they were going to ship it, you know, to various different ports. It was 800 miles through mountain ranges, over many rivers, through some of the most harsh climates. And um, as I worked up in Fairbanks, I, you know, there was a just, the, the overall thrill and excitement in the town, people making lots of money. I really hadn't been paying attention. Then I started listening to what they were doing, and that was going out through the various unions on the pipeline. And I decided, hey, I wanted some of that. I wanted it sounded exciting, and I wanted to earn, as we called it, the big bucks. You know, and for me, it was. I had left Michigan making about uh, four dollars an hour, so. 
I was excited and went in and joined the uh, laborers' union in Fairbanks, the local union. And I'm sure there weren't many women doing that. No, there weren't very many women. I mean, there were some, and 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 generally they were in the culinary union, being cooks, cooks aides, housekeeping. Not to say that there weren't some in the, you know, all the trades, the operators, and that. But I can tell you the first camp that I went to, which was Happy Valley. Uh, <laughs> I was ninety women. There were ninety women out of eleven hundred workers, so the odds were pretty good for dating and excitement when I got up Happy there. Valley. Happy Valley in the Brooks Mountain Range. Great place. But pretty wild. Uh, frontier life. Pretty wild, yeah. I did feel like I was, uh, you know, working in the... I was working at what I'd always, you know, wanted to be, a pioneer, only I was more fortunate. I had housing and I had food and didn't have to go out and chop my wood and that at that time, but... Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was a remote area, and we would go up to camps and spend um, nine weeks and then come back. That was generally the time frame, nine weeks up, two weeks off. So um, nine weeks where there, was, there wasn't any running water or, you know, unheated miner's shack. No, up, that was before I left for um, camp. I had been living in town, and ah. my friend and I had jobs, and we had been living in a... Um, uh, unheated old miner shack outside of town. It came with his job. It was one of the perks with no running water and an occasional <laughs> well, light. One of the light perks. Light at work. <laughs> and, and then lived in a tent. I was living in a tent in a campground, and I think it was uh, nearing September, and it was starting to, like, get snow flurries, and at that time I finally found a house to rent. So this quest for independence, uh, did you find this independence that you were after? Oh, I certainly did. Um, things were very safe when I was in Michigan. I was surrounded by family, friends, and uh, really didn't have to challenge myself. Uh, and I think when I went to Alaska, and especially going to work on the line, I just realized that um, it took a lot of willpower, and it took a lot of commitment. And that with those two things, I could accomplish most most anything I wanted. And that I never realized that I had such potential, that we each have such potential for change inside of us. But I think you need to be tested a little to let that come out. And that also, um, the independence, knowing that I followed a dream, that we all have dreams, and we all have dreams, and it's just that you have to follow them, and you never realize, I mean, you can never explore or or realize the end or see if you can challenge yourself until you follow those dreams. And I gave myself the opportunity to do that by leaving and then taking on this challenging kind of work. And you meet some challenging people, obviously, uh, when you're uh, pursuing this kind of uh, uh, road, you know, literally in the wilderness, uh, and Herb is a standout in the book, uh, you say, deserving of the wrath and disbelief of the reader. Yes, he was, he was a standout. He was my first foreman, basically, that I went to work for that um, must have run some kind of uh, work camp somewhere. He was perfect. All he did was yell, threaten, scream. He thought... Uh, <laughs> 
women just were for fetching, serving. Um, he couldn't even believe that we were working there and didn't like us on his crew and just was intolerable. So for uh, amusement, uh, my coworkers and I devised little games that we played to, that made us feel good. Um, I think I wrote in the book about I was on a garbage patrol, if you can believe it, uh, across a plane of snow to look for garbage, which was amazing. It was all over styrofoam things from construction. But we would fill up our bags that he gave us with snow because it's frigid and below zero and then uh, know that when spring came, they would melt and there would be nothing in them except water. And he thought we were out there doing our jobs, filling up things, putting garbage in, doing what he told us to do. But we became so annoyed with him that we thought it would just be fun to put snow in the bags. So there were bags of snow along the tundra, big hefties. <laughs> well, you uh, faced some of your... Uh I guess at the at that moment, never experiencing such frigid temperatures, though since living there, and as you explained, it was only fifty below last week. But yeah, but those right. were those were kind of startling new new experiences. I'm sure your first time in those kinds of temperatures. Yeah, it was amazing. I know. Um, you know, generally, I mean, those we would have to go out and work. Uh, the coldest day I ever had was at a camp called chandelier and uh the wind chill was 90 below zero i can say we went out in it we didn't stay too long because it's just impossible you can't do anything but i remember going out and just thinking how insane that was it was so cold of course you have to be careful really cautious of everything that you do what you touch and the machinery uh, of course that was always a challenge to keep that running but the whole experience beside the weather was just all the animals and just the scenery and just the kind of life that was up there and just sort of destitute and just this 800-mile trail, more or less, with these camps set up. It was just, it was amazing, and you're standing out there uh, among, like, these mountain ranges. It was, uh, it was unforgettable. I'm, I'm thrilled that I had that opportunity. And just as amazing and maybe probably in your mind even more, uh, and you've dedicated this book to your brother, your brother Stephen. I did. Tell us about that. I did. Well, my brother Stephen has something, um, a disorder called Kleinfelters, which um, he is uh, physically and mentally challenged. And um, he had lived in a group home and continues to live uh, in a a facility. And I just, when I left, I was trying to think of a way to keep in contact with him and sort of include him and, and, and make his life, give him the life that I was living. So I started uh, writing more or less a journal about my adventures in the form that somebody could, you know, read this to Stephen and then he would feel, I hope that he was sort of on an adventure along with me. And, um, I did that, and so originally this whole manuscript was set up as an, a journal and uh, written to him, and then more or less uh, put in a drawer for 30 years until people realized that Alaska was a state, and then I took the manuscript out and had someone edit it, and that's when it went into, uh, became published as a book. 
Well, Debbie, you're a modern-day pioneer. You have done it. A lot of people talk about it, but you went out and did it, and then you wrote about it as well. So congratulations. Thank you so much, and thank you for your time. The title of the book is Pipe Dream, an Alaskan Adventure, the author D.B. Brownlow. Debbie, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is uh, online. You can find it any online store, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the iUniverse bookstore. Locally, it's being sold up in Fairbanks, but um, at this point, just only ordered online. So, Or they can go into dbbrownlow.net, and then that will give other sites where they're able to purchase this. Thanks, Debbie, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. You have a great day iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.